Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. We've got a great episode for you today on Two Bees in a Podcast. First, we are joined by Dan Orell and Matt Hepfinger from the Bee Informed Partnership, who will be here talking about the best and worst management practices with beekeeping. If you want to know the great things that you can do to ensure colony health and the things that will lead your colony to low productivity or perhaps even demise, you definitely want to listen to that segment. That will be followed by a segment with Dr. Julia Bauscher from North Dakota State University. She and her team has done research on the factors that make the female larvae become either workers or queens, and you're certainly going to want to stay around to hear that. All of this will be concluded with everyone's favorite segment, questions and answers. So welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. I will tell you one of the things that we try to do at the University of Florida and our colleagues around the country try to do as well is we try to look for ways to help beekeepers. A lot of our extension programming will will target beekeepers. Maybe we'll get a lot of hobbyists or sideliners come to that. It's really difficult to reach commercial beekeepers. And commercial beekeepers, while, while they represent a smaller percentage of the overall beekeeping population in the U.S. and around the world, they hold the vast majority of the bee colonies. So anything that we can do to help commercial beekeepers is a, is a major plus. And we have this group in the United States called the Bee Informed Partnership that has a long history uh, of trying to help commercial beekeepers. They do a lot of research on the ground, working with commercial beekeepers to spot trends. And today we are excited on Two Bees in a Podcast to have two field specialists for the Bee Informed Partnership talking about the best and worst management practices that commercial beekeepers do. I think this is relevant to all beekeepers, so it's going to be great talking about these things. Amy, I hope you're ready. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Let's do it. How, how do I know you're ready? Just because you say it doesn't make it true. That's, that is also very true. <laughs> I'm usually not really just, ready, but I can I wait. I to see how fine. excited you were. All right. Well, I'm excited because I, I honestly, I, I don't even know what the list is. You saw these two individuals give a presentation, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they come up with. Joining us today from Texas A&M, out, out of Texas A&M, Dan Orell. And joining us out of UC Davis in California, Matt Hepfinger. We have Dan and Matt on the podcast with us. Dan and Matt, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So we have two guests, which Amy, of course, I botched these things up royally. So I'm going to do my best to make sure and not talk over them. So, so Dan and Matt, I'm about to ask you the same question. Maybe Dan, you answer first. Matt, you follow up. What do you guys do for BIP? How did you get involved with the Bee Informed Partnership? Uh, how did you get involved with bees? And what is it that you guys do? Okay. Um, so this is Dan Orell answering from Texas. Yeah, I, I uh, have been working as a field specialist for the Bee Informed Partnership uh, since 2017. Uh, so about three years uh, here working with commercial beekeepers. And uh, in our role as field specialists, we provide one-on-one consulting services for uh, 
about 20, odd, 20 or so beekeepers on my list, but then the other, the other four regions around the country, uh, again, they have pretty substantial beekeeper lists. Um, so, so yeah, in this job, I, I get a lot of one-on-one -on -one contact with, uh, with the commercial beekeepers. Uh, and uh, I first got into this uh, job, um, yeah, through hearing that, that BIP, was, uh, BIP was, was hiring for this, for this position um, back when I was up in Canada. Um, so I grew up in Atlantic Canada, and that's where I uh, first got into uh, beekeeping, uh, starting, uh, starting beekeeping on a uh, commercial beekeeping operation about 1,500 colonies in Nova Scotia. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I had three seasons in my back pocket of, of bee work before joining the big job, uh, but uh, I've really appreciated all the, all the overview and, uh, and um, insight into, into commercial operations that I've gotten in this position. Well, good, Dan. Matt, do you have a similar story? Do you, you have a similar background? Sure. Well, um, partly, uh, I... I started with BIP about, well, it's been exactly a year, actually. So I've been a field specialist uh, for BIP for a year. Before that, um, I had a completely different career uh, and was working uh, in the IT industry or telecom uh, company. But I've been a hobbyist for 10 plus years and, and um, bees have really been my passion or some would call it my obsession. So uh, when this BIP uh, job came available, I, I, I applied and, 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 uh, and in, in fact, I think Dan was uh, one that interviewed me and, and well, here I am working for BIP as a field specialist. I'm currently on the road in California. I've also got about 20 beekeepers that I consult with, uh, including several of the queen breeders here in California. It's, uh, it's a, a very interesting job, never a dull moment. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I love hearing about, you know, different stories about you guys being on the job. But um, so I saw you guys do a presentation at the American Beekeeping Federation this past January 2020. And you guys were talking about the best and worst commercial beekeeping practices out there. And so my question for you is, how did you guys come up with that list? Was it just through observation or, you know, how did you guys come up with this? Yeah, so <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the benefit of uh, interviewing multiple people. We always yeah. have those odd pauses. But I tell you what, Dan and, and Matt, since you guys kind of alternate the best and worst, so how, how did you guys come up with this list? I'd be curious to see. Maybe Dan, you first. Okay. Perfect. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, this list of, of the five best and five worst uh, commercial beekeeping practices. Um, it, uh, yeah, in, in a sense, it's, it's not supposed to be a canonical list, uh, but uh, uh, we put our heads together with the other field specialists and uh, spent some time uh, discussing patterns that we've seen. You know, what, what do the really successful operations do? What do the, the beekeepers that tend to struggle, um, what, what pitfalls do they tend to fall into? Um, but by putting it, putting it into a, a five best and five worst, we're hoping to make it a little bit more memorable and uh, just e e easily digestible. Yeah, and you guys, so who is the, who's the bad cop? Who's the one that put the worst list together? So I, I get to play the, the bad cop. This That's is, Matt, yep. Yeah, and I do want to credit everyone else. They're, you know, the other field specialists for BIP. Uh, I could have never come up with this list uh, alone. 
and, and they have many more years experience than I do. So, um, so, so Matt, are you saying there's lots of bad cops in BIP? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we, we joke a lot on this podcast. Now he doesn't know. He's like, I don't know how to respond it's to like, you. No <laughs> it's okay. Amy will answer, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. that, right. that, is, that is true. I, I really prefer being the, the good cop when I've been to visit someone's bees and, and when mm -hmm. I'm able to say, wow, this really looks like good beekeeping. Um, yeah. and, and, but sometimes we do have to be the not, not bad cops in a regulatory sense or a, um, or a cop sense, but... Uh, but it's, it's not nearly as much fun to, when you Sometimes see a big it problem. Is. It's bad news that you're giving someone, which is <laughs> difficult. I think, I think one of the great things about this, though, is that BIP and its field specialists, you know, through its tech teams and honestly just through its research and its reach in general, has a lot of opportunity to see beekeepers of all levels keeping bees, right? And they're able to see commercial beekeepers. They're able to look at their data. And you're able to, with, with it's, it's, it's more than an educated guess, probably, than how you guys develop these lists. They're, they're lists from data and from practical experience. And what's funny is that's not the question I'm supposed to ask you, but I'm dying inside because I want to know what your best and worst management practices are because I have a sneaky suspicion I know, but I haven't heard it yet. Listeners, I promise I have not heard this yet, so I'm dying to know. But the question I'm supposed to ask you because it's next on the list is even though you generated this information from commercial beekeeping, uh, does your list also apply to backyard beekeepers? Does it, does it uh, cover all aspects of commercial beekeeping? I mean, how, how applicable is it to beekeepers of all sizes or beekeeping operations of all scales? Yeah, a lot of what we'll talk about definitely applies to backyard beekeepers. Probably most everything we mentioned here, uh, at least... Um, there, there may be some specific things that would only apply to commercial guys, but yeah, I, I would say most of this, uh, a backyard beekeeper could uh, definitely take away some, some good things from this. I would also say we've tried to focus the list on uh, aspects of management that are uh, actionable. Uh, so what we, don't, we don't have things on this list like be in a good beekeeping area um, or uh, yeah, run an operation with a, with a with a really um, healthy bottom line. Um, so we've, we've tried to keep it more uh, in the areas that are, uh, yeah, the, the, where you can change your management to address issues. I, I like, actually, I like that idea, this, this idea that the list is actionable. So once you hear it, there's something you can do to address it because you're right in many cases as educators of beekeepers, we tend to, you know, hover way up in the clouds and make these pronouncements. Well, if you just stay in a good area or if you just can escape Varroa, but, but this idea that what you propose to us is something beekeepers can go out and do to make mm -hmm. positive changes now, that's really exciting. All right. So this is what we're going to do next. Are you guys ready? Yeah. I'm ready. Okay, Sorry. good. <laughs> Someone's ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the top things we're going to start with the worst on, you know, basically the worst and we'll go over to best number five and then we'll, we'll kind of count up, I guess. So the worst five things, I did not even say that correctly, but it doesn't matter because as soon as we get into it, everyone will understand what we're going to do. So why don't we go ahead and go through and we'll alternate between Matt and Dan. So Matt, you're the, the word, the worst, you're the bad cop. Why don't you let us know what the worst number five thing that commercial beekeepers do? Sure. Yes. The worst 
commercial beekeeping practice. Number five is poor equipment. Uh, we do see a lot of uh, colonies, a lot of operations, and, and we see a lot of poor equipment. And what I mean by that is things falling apart. Are your colonies B-tight? Uh, you need them to be B-tight. You don't want, uh, you want to discourage robbing. Uh, similar to that, weather tight. Uh, are your colonies drafty or, or even worse, is rain getting in? Um, so you're saying we're not supposed to use equipment that's like moldy and torn apart? <laughs> right, yeah. If, you, if you're getting rain in there, you're going to see mold. Um, you know, a, a, a bottom board that's all wet is just a disease reservoir. Uh, it's, it's, it's very unhealthy for the bees. Uh, I could talk about old comb and broken frames. Um, for commercial guys, you know, your pallets, if they're, you know, in bad shape and you're moving colonies, you could, you could spill a, you know, a colony. And, you know, that's, that's never good. So, Matt, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Yeah. This is interesting because this, this is kind of a curve for me. I wasn't necessarily expecting poor equipment. I, I want to ask yeah. two questions. Right. Number sure. one, I want to ask what percentage of commercial beekeepers with whom you work or with other field specialists from built work, what percentage of the equipment do you think is bad? Are we talking 10%, 20%, 30%? You can, it's an estimate, of course, you can be wrong, but, but I'm curious what your feeling is about that. Sure. Most of it is, is in good shape and it, it's a sliding scale too. It's, you know, we're in a gray area. Uh, I would say, you know, 10 or 15%. Okay. Interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of the lids seem to be, will, will be rotten um and yeah there's you know corners are, are completely damaged where you see robbing happen in the fall especially um but most of it is good but it's I interesting think, yeah i i would guess probably what commercial beekeepers are doing is that they're just playing the numbers game right you know yeah. to, to invest in new equipment to invest in new combs obviously costs money and so the question they're probably facing is is do i put that money there or do i put it in a treatment well the boxes yeah. haven't fallen apart yet and and what you're saying is that y you guys from bip think it's more important to address that than maybe we've given it credit for in the past i think that's an interesting point yeah yeah one more specific thing i'd i'd like to mention uh on for commercial guys uh, I find that the, the cleats on the pallets, uh, the W cleats are better. It separates the colonies uh, by an inch or, or half an inch, and which prevents moisture from building up between the colonies and the moisture just you know rots the boxes. It's also easier to hinge forward a colony with those W cleats uh, to check the bottom. So yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah. For our listeners out there, you know, a lot of our commercial beekeepers will keep multiple colonies on a pallet, right? Just a, yeah. a moving pallet, maybe four colonies, maybe five. And I'm, I'm saying the word colony, I guess I mean hive. But the idea is that mm -hmm. these cleats are affixed to the pallet and you sit your hive on them to provide stability. And what you're saying, Matt, is that this particular style, the W, allows some separation between hives, lowers moisture, build up, allows the hive to be rocked forward, et cetera. So that's, that's exactly great. I love the fact that, you know, already out the gate, you guys are giving very practical advice, something I wouldn't have even considered addressing, you know, from a, from the academic perspective. But I, I like that idea. That's really cool. Thanks, I Matt. feel like we should have asked you, Jamie, what you thought the best and worst things were, well, and we should have compared and it. It is too late. This. You're right. You're into right. this interview now. Right, so Dan, that's fine. Dan, I'm excited to hear what Dan says is the best <laughs> practice, number five, what? now that Matt's already thrown me a curve. Yeah. Why, you know, I like being bad cop, so I'll ask Matt about his, you know, worst 
five and you go ahead and ask Dan about his best five and we'll just switch okay it well that way. you can <laughs> I don't know if people here see I am us, organizing I mean, yeah I know of course the bad cop always trying to organize stuff all right <laughs> Dan I've got to hear it what's your what's your best practice number five so counting down from number five um the fifth best practice uh that we wanted to point out is good splitting methods um and that that can encompass a lot of different things so I'll just um, make a few bullet points um, but a, a pattern that we see is that uh, the folks who split their hives fairly aggressively and, and consistently, uh, where, where most of the colonies in an operation go through, uh, go through the splitting process, um, is that they tend to have uh, better success controlling the, their varroa loads. Um, and, uh, and, and this does make a certain amount of sense in that uh, when you split a colony, say you split a colony in two, then you've got all of a sudden the same number of varroa mites, but uh, distributed between two colonies where you've got two queens that are, are laying flat out and, and, and therefore you can get a, um, the, the, yeah, the, the buildup of the bees can, can start to outpace the uh, buildup of the varroa mites. Um, but also uh, you know, thorough splitting gives you some opportunities to control varroa uh, when the colonies are smaller, or even when you've got that uh, gap uh, in uh, in the brood cycle, if you're using cells to uh, um, to requeen. Uh, so, for example, putting in treatments on uh, day 17 to 19 uh, can be a really effective treatment window. Um, and I also just wanted to mention that I think splitting time is uh, a time in the season when uh, virtuous cycles or vicious cycles. Uh, can really make themselves known in your in your uh, in your beekeeping year, so that if you're uh, if you've got really nice uh, strong colonies with a healthy brood that you're splitting up, that and the uh, environmental conditions are are good, like they're you know at the start of uh, at the start of a nice uh, honey flow, then your splits can just be uh, primed to really succeed. Uh, but if you have had big losses and if there are uh, lingering health issues like uh, European fall brood in, in the brood, uh, and if you're trying to split them too hard, and you know, really you should be making three frame splits that time of year, but you're scrounging and making one and a half frame splits, um, then that European fall brood issue can really hamper the buildup of those colonies. Uh, so besides the advantage of giving an opportunity for mite control. I think it's, uh, it's a really key time to, uh, to be looking at the healthier brood. Yeah, I think it's interesting you bring that up. A lot of beekeepers I know certainly believe that uh, splitting can be a, a, a management strategy for varroa, for varroa. It can contribute to varroa control for the very reasons that you said. Also think, you know, Ill, ill-timed splits, splits out of season, splits when there aren't a lot of good resources can put you in a bad corner, right? Where you're having to provide a lot of uh, sugar syrup, as it were, maybe pollen patties, et cetera. So split management in general can be a, a very good thing for sure for beekeepers. It's something that a lot of hobbyists and sideliners don't think about as much because, you know, it's what commercial guys and gals do, but it, it certainly can play dividends when, uh, pay dividends when, when done appropriately. Awesome. Okay. So that was five. Now we've got four more for each. So Matt, can you tell me the worst number four on your list? Sure. Worst number four is no plan for antibiotics. Um, 
as you know, in, in 2017, uh, beekeepers are now required to get a, a veterinary feed directive, a VFD, to acquire antibiotics. And uh, antibiotics are, are used for fowl brood, both European fowl brood and American fowl brood. Uh, a, a quick note here, uh, you do not need a, a VFD for fumagillin, which is uh, sort of an antibiotic used for noisema. So for uh, acquiring uh, the correct antibiotics for, for EFB, for example, um, you would need to get oxytetracycline, which is teramycin. AFB, you would want tylosin or, or tylen. And um, to get those, you need to work with a vet. And I just actually went through uh, an experience. You know, I, I am a, a field specialist and I, I look at thousands of colonies every year, but I also keep a few bees as a hobbyist. Um, and this year I, I saw EFB. And so I went through the whole rigmarole of, of contacting a few vets in my area. And I, I picked one that I seemed to like. And it was, it was quite easy to get the VFD. Um, a few phone calls. Uh, I dropped off some samples at uh, his office. Some of the vets wanted to come look at, you know, my colonies in person. Uh, I thought it would be easiest if, if I just drop off the samples. That's what I do. Uh, I take bee samples, so um, I can certainly do that with my own colonies as, as well. And uh, I was able to, you know, pick up the VFD and my vet actually gave me teramycin for uh, all my colonies. Uh, and it was something on the order of a hundred bucks or, or so. It wasn't very expensive. I thought it would be a lot more, but uh, he was very efficient and took care of me and I was able to treat my bees right away. So yeah, the number four worst commercial beekeeping practice is not to have a plan. Um, so yeah, make a few phone calls and, and find a vet that you like. It's not that hard. I think that's good advice. I tell you, you know, inside the U.S. and outside the U.S., people view, you know, the antibiotic thing very differently. A lot of the world doesn't have access to antibiotics. And so for our listeners outside the U.S., you know, we're allowed to place a, a couple of different antibiotics in colonies to address the, the two foul brood diseases that we have. And so this veterinary feed directive means that it has to be essentially administered via um, oversight by a veterinarian. That's the, the short way of doing it. So that was a curve thrown to commercial beekeepers a couple mm -hmm. years ago who otherwise had direct access to these antibiotics before the VFD passed. We have a system for dealing with that in Florida that's kind of unique. It expedites it and mm -hmm. it's, it's a free system for most beekeepers in the state. But you're right, man. A lot of beekeepers who haven't planned for that extra loophole might be caught off guard if they need yeah. to try to address foul brood in their colonies using a, uh, an antibiotic that they now have restricted access to yeah all right dan let's see if you can tell us what the the fourth best management practice is for commercial beekeepers okay so uh, number four on the list of best practices is to rotate treatments uh, and specifically varroa treatments um so yeah, just, uh, you know, both in our experience talking to commercial beekeepers and, and uh, also supported by the data, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, Amitraz um, is the most effective miticide that's currently available. Um, but there are some definitely credible uh, signs of the beginnings of Amitraz resistance. So, for example, 
uh, Frank Rinkovich, who's, who's based at the USDA Baton Rouge B-Lab, um, has uh, done some work that, that shows a, a range of sensitivity to, um, uh, to amitraz in the mites. Um, but with amitraz still being the most effective miticide, I think it's clear that you can get uh, various benefits from rotating the treatments and not only using amitraz in your beekeeping gear. Um, so for example, taking advantage of uh, different, uh, different treatment windows, uh, for example, late fall, uh, putting in an oxalic treatment, um, just making sure to, to catch those weather windows or, or windows in the, um, in the colony life cycle. And, and this is also somewhere where um, this isn't just a recommendation out of, out of uh, thin air. Um, based on the BIP uh, loss and management survey, uh, Ariella Haber and Natalie Steinhauer and Dennis Van Engelsdorp uh, published a paper that uh, showed that beekeepers, commercial, um, migratory commercial beekeepers who used uh, oxalic or um, formic or thymol in addition to amitraz uh, saw lower winter losses than their counterparts who were only using amitraz. So the important take-home message here is you've got to address Varroa, but if you're going to address them, you need to rotate treatments and make sure you use the various treatment options available. Amitraz being one of the backbones of that, but also considering using things such as formic or oxalic or thymol or some of the other treatments available during the times of the year that they have increased efficacy. For example, oxalic acid, that would be winter. Mm -hmm. All right. Now good, I'm trying to think like, okay, now I don't remember the top three. So I'm excited <laughs> to hear what the top three are of the two. Matt, what's your, what's your worst beekeeping practice? Third from the top. I'm just getting better here. Number three uh, worst practice is missing visits while your bees are in almonds. Uh, this is, of course, going to mm -hmm. apply to commercial beekeepers more. Um, but when, when they're in the almonds, I, I see a lot of guys, you know, take a break. They think I got to almonds, now I can take a break. But really, I, I think it's a great time to check your bees, just doing bas basic animal husbandry, you know, feeding the ones that need it, uh, doing health checks. Uh, of course, checking your varroa levels. Uh, you want to check where, you know, your colonies are placed. Full sun is better. Uh, if you're working with a grower that doesn't, you know, uh, want you to put your, your colonies in, in full sun, you can explain to them, well, they'll fly sooner and they'll pollinate sooner um, if we put them in full sun. Uh, around the time of, of almonds too, you know, everyone's built up their colonies. Um, swarm prevention, uh, you need to be looking for cells and, and do anything uh, you would normally do for swarm prevention. Uh, something else that we've been recommending uh, you know, sometimes pollination can be stressful. Uh, you know, there, there are chemicals sprayed, even if it's not in the orchard you're in, it could be across the street. Uh, and so what we've been recommending lately is, is to add a, a protein patty. Even though that doesn't make sense, you're, you're seeing a ton of protein coming in. The almond pollen is, is coming in. Uh, but if you add a uh, protein patty, we feel that it might dilute any chemicals that they may accidentally be bringing in. Uh, other things, uh, just being on top of your, your broker arrangements. Who, who's going to do what? Is your broker feeding? Are you feeding? Or, or things like that. And of course, did I mention check your Varroa levels? I think I did. <laughs> How many times do we have to say that over uh, and over again? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So basically, you know, once you get to almonds, you don't just drop your hives and leave them and go out and have a Corona or whatever you want to have, but you've really? got to check them, right? When we, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that was the top thing. Coronavirus, that's the first one that popped I, in your head. I don't she even drink Corona. corona. Never. It's not a coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Way to go, Amy. That's why I should, I should keep you on You're mute welcome. <laughs> Matt, I do want to put you on the spot with that question, with that, with that comment. Um, I, I get a lot of commercial beekeepers coming out of almonds saying, oh, you know, the bees look so bad coming out of almonds. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm curious if a lot of that occurs because of lack of management during almonds. If, if a lot of those issues, quote, coming out of almonds could have been addressed had they been managed throughout almonds. What do, what do you think about that? And like I said, it's okay to be wrong or right. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, you put me on the spot there. Um, I, I think, yeah, so I did see some, some colonies with um, some brood damage this year. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot you can do about it. Uh, you're in the almonds, but I, I think there is something to be done. Uh, and that, you know, the few things I just mentioned could help. Um, I can't say uh, how much, if, 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 you know, it, Everything's a gray area. I mean, and every answer to every beekeeping question is it, it depends. So I'm going to say it depends. <laughs> yeah, good. I, I think that's a, a very diplomatic, appropriate <laughs> answer. And, yeah. and, and, and again, recognizing that we have listeners from all over the world, I want to say this whole almond thing is because uh, somewhere between 60 and 70% of our commercial bee colonies are moved to almonds every yeah. January, early February for the purpose of pollinating almonds. And so that's no doubt one of the most significant pollinator dependent crops here in the United States. A lot of colonies go out there and then yeah. from California, they fan back out all over the country to, to pollinate other crops, et cetera. So Matt's just basically saying, yeah. you know, once, once beekeepers get bees to almonds for pollination purposes, we can't just leave them there. We got to manage them while they're there. So Dan, yeah. we've heard the top three bad ones. So now tell us what the third best management practice is for commercial beekeepers. Okay, the third best management practice is uh, to pull honey and treat early. So uh, trying not to get behind on your, uh, yeah, on your honey harvest can really have, have uh, it can be really beneficial for your bee health going into the fall. Uh, even if you get some weather delays during the summer, trying to get that honey off at the appropriate time. Um, and uh, treat for mites in a timely fashion. Uh, there's just a lot of tasks that need to be done towards the, towards the end of the season, getting the, getting the colonies up to a good winter weight, uh, especially if, if it's an operation that's uh, moving these colonies indoors, uh, then, that, um, then they have a really strict weather window where after, after, the col after it's too cold for the colonies to take up syrup, then, then that window is closed. We don't um, deal with that here in Florida. No, that's right. So you'd have a, you'd have a little bit more leeway if you're if you're moving colonies down to, for example, Texas or or, um, or Florida to winter colonies. Um, but also with with honey prices as as they've been for for the past uh, past couple of years, um, the value of an extra week or two of honey coming in uh, is really not that significant compared to the. Uh, the condition your bees going into winter. Awesome. All right. So let's let's get to the final two. What do you guys think? 
Exciting. Matt, what's the worst number two? Number two, uh, worst commercial beekeeping practice is poor feeding practices. Um, yeah, I see a lot of times uh, colonies will have just too much protein patty on them. Uh, you know, it's a dink and, you know, a crew will come through and they'll put two patties on everything, whether it's huge or, uh, you know, tiny. Um, and then the opposite as well. If, if you're not given the ones that need it enough food. Uh, so uh, I think some training for crew might help with that. Another uh, one I see is, is people giving syrup when it's too cold. I think Dan just mentioned that one too. Um, uh, or, or leaky, uh, a lot of people, a lot of commercial guys will feed with these gallon uh, jugs on top and um, sometimes they'll leak, which just really encourages robbing or it fills up the bottom board and, and which is just, you know, uh, it's, it's not healthy for the bees. Uh, one other thing I could mention too is, is there's been studies done where sporadic feeding can actually lead to EFB. Uh, so being consistent uh, when your bees need to be fed, make sure they've got something on uh, for them. And then uh, last thing I'll mention is, is that um, when using supplements like essential oils or, you know, there are products out there that you can put in your syrup or, or even in your patties, uh, the essential oils um, might be good in the spring. They're um, kind of a feeding stimulant. Uh, they're not a treatment or, or anything, but in the fall, be careful with those because those, those strong smelling essential oils can lead to robbing. So that's, that's the last tip for, uh, uh, yeah, number two, worst beekeeping practice, poor feeding. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Matt, one of the yeah. feeding practices that almost always drives me crazy when I think yeah. about it is that um, open feeding where, where beekeepers oh, just yeah. administer feeding in troughs. And so rather than, you know, it's a time saver for them, right? You can yep. either deliver feed straight to a colony, which if you've got thousands of colonies can take a while, or you can fill up a bathtub and the apiary and the bees can just come and get it. And so yeah. do you see that a lot in commercial operations still where they're kind of slopping the hogs is what I call it? Yeah, there is a bit of slopping the hogs. Yeah. And I, I've seen it where, yeah, it, it, you have a pile of dead, dead, dead bees by this, you know, barrel or, or there's a thousand wasps that you're feeding instead of, you know, your bees and or, yeah, or disease, disease transmission, right? I mean, these things disease, are spread yeah, definitely. That would be uh, an issue. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jamie. That's a good one. I'm adding. Yeah, so, I, so incidentally, Matt, I, I completely agree. I think, I think everything surrounding feed and nutrition is super important for management practices, right? And so here you're talking principally about carbohydrate, you know, feeding sugar syrup or corn syrup, mm -hmm. and some of these supplemental patties. But I, I think that's an area of great uh, teaching need in the, in, the world, in the beekeeping world. We also need a lot of research related to it, especially pollen supplements. So, Dan, I'm curious, yeah. how do you counter bad feeding practices? What's your best, your, your second best management strategy for commercial beekeepers? So, number two uh, for the best beekeeping practices would be good treatment practices. Um, and, uh, again, just to focus in on varroa treatment, um, for, for, for me to consider a treatment practice, a, a good treatment practice, um, primarily it, it's a case of wanting to maximize the effectiveness and minimize the damage to your colonies. There's always going to 
there's always the risk of some, some bit of a trade-off there. Um, but if you can maximize the effectiveness and minimize the damage, that, that's really what you're aiming for. Um, and um, so, for example, if you're using contact-type treatments like Apovar, uh, to maximize the effectiveness, it really seems like those strips have to be in the brood nest where nurse bees are going to be uh, going to be walking over them. You know, if they're if you've got uh, that second box, second brood box, uh, if there's a lot of sugar stored in that box and the brood nest is right down in the bottom box, a strip right there uh, hanging from the top of the the, the top box um, isn't going to. Um, isn't going to help you very much in your mite control. Um, and generally just be access to treatments, scraping off burr comb, making sure that, uh, that you, a treatment that you're using isn't just sandwiched right under a lid. Um, and uh, taking into account the seasonal uh, the treatment windows. So uh, using an oxalic acid vapor uh, right in the middle of uh, peak brood rearing in the spring, is going to give you a lot less burrow control than it is uh, at a time when brood area is uh, is really diminishing or or almost uh, or almost uh, has been shut down. So, Dan, I think one of the things that you're mentioning is really important. You know, a lot of people just assume that if they follow the label on the product, that they're going to it, it's going to control whatever they're trying to control. But there are good strategies for using things that may not show up on the label, like what you said, scraping burr comb, making sure there's contact, things like that. So, you know, there, there's some thought when, when applying treatments to try to achieve maximum efficacy. And I like the fact that you pointed that out. That's a really good idea. Absolutely. And, and then on the flip side, to minimize the damage to your colonies, um, with a lot of these treatments, you need to take into account both uh, the colony conditions, uh, mainly colony strength, um, and environmental conditions. So if you're, if you're applying a couple of strips of, uh, or a couple of pads of Formic Pro uh, to a, a colony that's only four frames of bees, uh, that regardless of the temperature conditions, that's gonna be a world of trouble for that colony. And- uh, Very good point, very good point. And similarly, or, or I guess, yeah, the, with these treatments that are more volatile, like uh, formic acid and, and thymol-based products, you need to take a look at the at the temperature windows, especially. And uh, back to Matt's point about um, it has to do with uh, feed. Uh, you don't want your feed products to interfere with uh, with your treatments. So uh, putting a putting a protein patty right on top of uh, right on top of your mite treatment is going to uh, both interfere with the, the bees' access to that treatment, and also, uh, I would say, risk contaminating that feed, um, and and possibly having having uh, having your bees suffer some damage from that. Yes, varroa, varroa, varroa. We're always talking about varroa. Jamie, what I want I want you to guess. What do you think is the worst top thing and you know, the worst, the worst is a struggle for me. Um, I, the best, I would assume you got to control Varroa when they're controlling Varroa, they're handling most of their issues. But I, I might be wrong because Varroa's already shown up a couple places, so maybe, maybe it's already been adequately covered. Worst, worst management practices for beekeepers. 
I would say not um, listening to our podcast, but <laughs> of course, that's, that's just my opinion. No doubt a strong correlation between. Well, okay. the thing is, is Amy, a lot of the things I would have said have either made it to the best or best. To me, the, the, the three biggest issues beekeepers face are nutrition, queen quality, and varroa. Sure. And nutrition, nutrition and varroa have been covered pretty heavily. So we'll see. We'll see. We, I'm, I'm hanging on the edge of the cliff here. <laughs> waiting for, <laughs> <laughs> to push me off or to securely pull me back on and tell me that my feet were in the right spot. That's fair. Okay, Matt, what is the worst number, the worst, very worst thing that commercial beekeepers do in their bee yard? All right, you ready? Here it is. Number one, worst commercial beekeeping practice is relying on unproven products. And uh, what I mean by that is, is you know, a lot Can of- Can I add science to that? <laughs> well, yeah. So we talked about that. A lot of, uh, you know, unproven or, you know, it doesn't have to be proven by science per se. Um, I debated about adding, you know, science to that because BIP is, of course, all about, you know, data-driven. We're about the science. But a lot of commercial guys, they, you know, unfortunately uh, are using some off-label products. And so um, that's uh, uh, something I consider to be proven, uh, some of these products. Uh, so... Uh, as far as unproven products, uh, I'm referring to things like, um, well, a lot of times supplements. I see people using supplements instead of something else. Uh, when, you know, the whole VFD thing happened, um, some beekeepers were caught off guard, didn't have antibiotics, and they were trying to use some supplements to help uh, prevent EFB. And, and once you've already got it, you know, no supplement is going to treat for EFB. It might help in prevention, but... Uh, once you've got it, you need antibiotics. Um, there's, you know, been a lot of untested type mite treatments. Um, right now, a trendy one is, is, is oxalic acid with glycerin in a towel, and it works well in some cases. I've seen it work very well. Uh, but as you know, all beekeeping is local. There's been uh, some data that has shown it didn't work well in, in other areas. So, um, other examples would be, you know, the, the old vaping of, of mineral oil or fogging mineral oil. I think that's been debunked. Uh, small cell foundation. I'm, I'm, I am glad, incidentally, you switched to fogging because I could just now see yeah. people oh, gosh, mineral yeah. oil in their vape. vape. No. I don't even know how to, what those things, <laughs> I, what I is the thing called with which you vape? A vaporizer? Vape? Yeah. Is that what that is? I yeah. Think so, so please, we are not endorsing using... Va right. Vaping mineral oil. I don't even know how to talk about it. I don't even know what the right verbs are. I, yeah, I, you know, you see these big things the guys have. They're they're foggers, yep. and they're putting all kinds yep. of, you know, these these homegrown recipes in them. If if you want to try something new, even if it's, you know, some people feel it's proven. I, I would recommend that you take take one yard and you treat half the yard with what you always do and you treat the other half of the yard with with whatever new product you would like to try i mean dad gum you met you just said exactly what i was about to say really? one of the problems that i see with commercial yeah. beekeepers is they just they're all in if their right. buddy down right. the road says oh gosh this works they're going to put it right. in fifteen thousand colonies right you know, try right. it in a yard you know I, don't yeah 
You got a, or you got half a yard. <laughs> Are you frustrated, Jamie? Or I can hear, of a yard. I can hear the anger. A yard. I, I'm just like, guys, but you know, that's the funny thing about it is, is they'll, they'll do it over 15,000 colonies and say it works or doesn't work, but they oftentimes right. don't follow that up with monitoring. They don't right. really know if yeah. it works or not because they didn't monitor. So, right. Monitoring. Blood yeah. Pressure. I mean, blood pressure is going up. I'm on basic science. Yeah. Let's, let's have a, yeah, let's have a control and a test. Um, so yeah, and anything that has, you know, that promises to do everything, you know, this is going to help with nutrition. It's going to kill mites. It's going to knock down your viruses. It's, it's, you know, any cure all type that, you know, it, I would call it, you know, snake oil, uh, comes to mind. So, um, yeah, if you want to try something new, that's great, but test it first, do half a yard, the old way, half a yard, the new way, pick a couple yards and do that. So I'm well so said. glad we're ending with the best so that Jamie's blood pressure. Yeah, I need, down I, Dan, I need Dan, to bring my need blood you. pressure down just a hair. Okay. So Dan, here's your chance. What is the single best thing commercial beekeepers do to help, you know, maximize colony health, productivity, et cetera. Let's have it. Yeah. So I, you just mentioned uh, monitoring and uh, the, the single thing we've highlighted as the best commercial beekeeping practice is to know your mite levels. Um, and, and that involves not, uh, not just a visual inspection, but it involves uh, some sort of uh, yeah, proportional testing method. So whether it's an alcohol wash of, of half a cup of bees, even an ether wash for a, or, or sugar shake for a quick check, um, but absolutely monitoring your mite levels. Um, and keeping records of your mite levels um, at a certain time of year. So if, if you're if you're about to pull your honey in August and, uh, and you're peaking at about a 3% mite level on average, you want to know, is that a little bit higher than last year or a little bit lower than last year? Um, so having that, uh, keeping track of whether your mite levels seem to be uh, stable year over year, or if there's some indication that they're ratcheting up slightly um, from last year and the year before. Um, Cause that, because if they are ratcheting up, then, then you need to uh, consider um, like adding an additional strategy, at least for a season. Um, and uh, of course, that, this is sort of BIP's bread and butter to come out and, uh, and check on, on these operations might levels at, at times a year when, um, when there's a lot going on and it, and it, it may be hard to do the mite monitoring in a, in a timely way. That's um, the best news I've heard all day. <laughs> what what is the mite monitoring thing yeah that commercial beekeepers know their mite levels and i think that's true i mean every commercial beekeeper i speak to that that's usually what they say well you know we checked mite loads and this is what it was last week so i think but that's you know, great but what's amazing to me though and dan you probably see this too is that a lot of commercial beekeepers don't monitor they they just kind of rely on their gut they'll look in and see shriveled wings or i need to treat or this is when i normally treat so i need to treat so i think you know, having those data to help make decisions is very important. So Dan, I echo that monitor. Again, it's no surprise to me that your, your best management practice is related to Varroa in some way. Well, I'm going to take this moment to reiterate those and I'm going to do worse from five to one and best from five to one. You guys tell me if I have it right. So Matt, going from worst five to one, poor equipment, no plan for antibiotics, Missing visits while bees are in almonds, 
bad feeding practices and relying on unproving products. If you want your bees to not do well and, and for your bottom line to suffer, you do that's, those five yeah, things, That's right? what we want, Jamie. That's exactly what every <laughs> beekeeper is trying to do. But Dan, if you, if you want your bees to succeed, you've got to have good splitting methods. You have to rotate varroa treatment specifically, but treatments in general. You want to pull honey and treat early. You want to have good treatment practices and you want to know your mite level. So I think four of those, four of the, actually even all five of them, all five in some way relate to Varroa, but, but some other things as well. So essentially Varroa, Varroa, Varroa. Am I right there? That's no accident. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to me when we talk about bee losses, people always want to point out all the other things that are killing bees. And when I get interviewed, people want to interview me about pesticides and how bad they are for bees or these days, these stupid murder hornets. But but nevertheless, don't you know, even get always, me started. Yeah, it's like you want to raise everybody's blood pressure. Let's talk about that. But it really boils down to varroa management, nutrition management, and some of these other things you guys mentioned. Matt, Dan, thank you so much. I really appreciate the insight that you guys offered. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So that we've we've been graced by your presence today. We had Dan Orell, who's uh, BIP field specialist based at Texas A&M and College Station, Texas. We've also had Matt Hepfinger, who's also a field specialist for the Bee Informed Partnership based at UC Davis. And you've listened to their top five best management practices for commercial beekeepers and top five worst management practices for commercial beekeepers. We'll make sure to list these five best and five worst in our show notes. And thank you guys for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. If you've been a beekeeper for any length of time, you've probably learned the old adage in honeybee biology that workers and queens both come from the same type of egg. Those eggs are fertilized, right? So, from that point forward, right, you've got this female individual, this, this larva that comes out of the egg, and something happens to that larva to either push her in the direction of becoming a worker or push her in the direction of becoming a queen. It's been a long-held belief that for the first few days of that female's, female larva's life that she's fed royal jelly, and then kind of somewhere around day two or three, there's a fork in the road where the individuals, the workers, want to keep on the queen route, continue to feed that queen royal jelly, and the individuals, the workers want to push towards workers, start feeding that individual brood food, which is a different uh, quality or makeup of diet. So we, we've kind of long held this belief, but there was a paper that came out in May of 2020 in the Royal Society uh, proceedings that, that actually gets at this issue. Dr. Julia Bauscher, who's here joining us today, is an associate professor of evolutionary and developmental biology in the Department of Biological Sciences for North Dakota State University. And she and her colleagues published a paper called Diet Quantity Influences Cast Determination in Honeybees. Dr. Bauscher, thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. I appreciate you uh, calling in because this is a paper of very significant interest, and I look forward to discussing it on, on, for the benefit of the beekeeper audience that we have. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Absolutely. So it's kind of, we told you behind the scenes before we started this interview, before we get down into the meat of your manuscript, the research project that you did, I just want to know very quickly something about you. How did you get involved in bee research in general? How did you end up doing the project that we're going to discuss today? All right. Well, I've wanted to be a scientist ever since I was a small child and I grew up in Louisiana and in Louisiana, there's tons of insects in your backyard. So I always loved insects, all kinds, collecting them. And um, I eventually went to graduate school and I worked on dung flies and got a PhD doing that. And when I started as a faculty member, I started to go into bees. So I got a job at North Dakota State University and agriculture is really important up here. And I started to think about pollinators. This was also around the time that we were really starting to worry about pollinator decline. And I first started working on bees that were not honeybees. I worked on the alfalfa leaf cutting bee and the blue orchard bee. And as I started working on those bees, I was looking at nutrition and diet and did some experiments showing how um, bees can be reared on different diet amounts to get very different adult sizes. And after we did that study, I started to think about, well, you know, honeybees are bees and wondering if this kind of mechanism would be important for them, would amount of diet be really important for size differences, especially size differences related to caste? And that's sort of the, um, the start of how we got into this work. I think that's interesting because, you know, largely uh, held belief is that it's kind of quantity and quality of diet, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. that the queens are fed a, not just more food, they're fed a different quality food, which pushes them towards queen. But ultimately, as we kind of get down into your project, you're going to have shown that that's, that's not necessarily the case. It's funny, before we go there, though, I, I was listening to you talk about as, as a PhD student, you were working with dung flies. And I think that's interesting. It probably wasn't hard for you to get motivated to move <laughs> into bees, was it? You like- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody sort of a- I would thought it would be a real conversation killer, the dung fly thing, but I was surprised how I would go to parties and people were actually really in. They wanted to know, well, where did you get your dung? How do you know <laughs> that? And are they like calling you the dung woman? Like, Julie, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. When I was doing my PhD in South Africa, <laughs> my wife was doing her master's there too. And she was working with uh, ungulate, um, at least big mammal uh, populations. And she was estimating them using piles of their feces. So scat. So my wife is also a dung girl. In fact, they called her the pooper scooper. <laughs> she'd go around. So, so when I was oh hearing you gosh. talk about your PhD with, with dung flies, I was hearkening back to my graduate school days in South Africa where I was looking at dung beetles and my wife was known as the pooper scooper, which instantly <laughs> told me that you probably had, were a great hit at parties, which independently you just confirmed. So I, I <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess ever since uh, humans are able to speak, poop is a, a topic of interest. <laughs> it's just funny. And I'm it's still sitting funny. here giggling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so Dr. Bauscher, let's go ahead and go back into talking about this specific research that you were doing. Um, so when, when was this research done? This was done a few summers ago. Um, And it was done by a master's student of mine, Garrett Slater, who has since graduated. He's now a PhD student at Purdue. And uh, we were interested in this idea about food amount and how amounts of food can regulate when uh, larval bees decide to go through metamorphosis and pupate. Mm -hmm. And also related to this, we wanted to know about how the amount of food might affect caste determination. 
But of course, everybody thought diet quality was very important. And so we wanted that to be a component of our experimental design as well. So let's talk about that. Like what, you know, we've already mentioned a little bit that, that historically we thought it was quality. We thought it was that fork in the road, but you know, you've kind of thought from your background with other bees that perhaps it's the amount. So t- talk a little bit about your experimental design. You know, how, what, what stuff in the literature pushed you towards doing this particular project? All right. So we also, as I mentioned We were interested in other bees as well. And when we started to look at the literature, we saw that even within some social bees like bumblebees or cape honeybees, that quantity was thought to be really important. And so that gave us another reason to do this experiment. And we thought, well, we wanna test quantity, but we need to also test quality at the same time. And by doing that in a particular kind of experimental design, we can actually measure the importance of each thing and also the potential interactions between those two things. So we can sort of take um, an adult bee and say, okay, how much of the cast determination is explained by quantity? How much is explained by quality? And we did that by doing what's called a factorial design. And it just means that we did every single diet quality component with a quantity component. And we had nine different levels of diet quality, and we had eight different levels of quantity. And so for every diet quality we had, we did that at all the different quantities and vice versa. So I don't know how clear that is, but we ended up having lots of different Yeah, I was going to say, it was a massive study design. You basically had 72 treatment groups, right? Yeah, exactly. We had 72 treatment groups. And I then read your also- paper. I read yeah, your paper. Yeah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> you, I appreciate your close reading. Thank we also you. had an extra treatment that was not part of the factorial design. But what we did with that is we took the, the medium, the middle quality diet out of those nine. And we fed it to some larvae in ad lib, which means as much as they could possibly eat. So we fed it in excess. Hmm. And that was just the middle quality diet. It wasn't the lowest or the highest. And the idea around that middle quality diet is we had read some papers where that diet was thought to be very good for rearing workers. And so we thought that was a good diet to kind of test our hypothesis in a second way being as we wouldn't necessarily expect that diet would make queen-like individuals. So we tried to see if we could do it by giving them an excess amount. Sure. So this is, so I have a question from a non-researcher perspective. So how, so what quality components were you looking at and what does that actually mean? And how are you feeding the larva? You know, for someone who's never really even done research before, you know, how do you do that? Great. So we had two different aspects of quality that we're interested in. We were interested in protein content, like the proportion of protein and the proportion of carb, carbohydrates, um, which are sugars. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different quality aspects that are thought to be important for queen rearing. But we just focused on those two because most of the previous studies had gotten positive results on either protein or carbohydrate. And there had been a rather well-known paper um, showing that a protein component, royal lactin, was the queen maker. 
basically. So that's a reason to look at protein. But a lot of people had also thought that carbohydrate content was also important. Um, so we, we had those two and we, we altered them looking at different, we had like a high protein, medium protein and low protein diet, and then high carb, medium carb and low carb. And we did all those different combinations. So we had like high protein, low carb, medium and medium. And that's how we got our nine. Got it. Got it. So how do you feed the larva? So we took them from the hive very carefully well, when they're about a first instar, and we put them in these little plates that are, um, they're actually for culturing tissue, but they just have little circle, circular wells in them. And okay. so you put the honeybee in there and you, and you feed it every day by squirting a little bit of food uh, right in front of its mouth. So you have to be a little bit careful because you don't want to drown them, but you also don't want them to run out of food. So That's fair. Yeah, it's it's important to do it, and I think Jamie probably has even more experience than I do doing it. So yeah, I, I look forward to hearing more tips later from him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we the way we <laughs> we did it is we had a certain amount we did feed them each day, and then the quantity treatments were really only fed um, in the final day. So up until um, the last period of development, they were all kind of getting the same amount which honestly is a sort of an excess because they don't usually finish it. If they had finished it, they would have died. But the differences in the amount of diet really came at the end where some were fed a lot more than others. Hmm. Interesting. So at the end of the day, it was neither carbs nor protein. It was simply more food. The more food they ate, the more likely they were to become queens or be queen-like, right? Exactly. So the bees that didn't um, get a lot of food, even if they got a high quality of food, they were not very queen-like. And we had some that were fed a whole lot and it didn't really matter what the quality of the diet was. If they were fed a lot, they became uh, more queen-like. And this was especially shown in that um, second kind of experiment we did where we took the worker diet and we fed them in excess. And in that one, actually we fed them a whole lot every day. So they got more than they could ever eat. And all of those individuals ended up being similar to the commercially reared queens that we, that were like our reference group for queenliness. Yeah, that was really neat. I I, I like the fact that you included commercially reared queens as that positive control as it were, you know, so it was really neat to see that. So, you know, we've got a big beekeeper audience and people listen to this from around the world. And ultimately, you know, they're going to have some, some applicable questions, right? They're going to say, Things like, well, you know, this is really interesting. What what could this, you know, downstream do for beekeepers? I think this is important before we kind of go there, though, because it's pretty clear from a lot of the survey data that when beekeepers are reporting about their calling losses, they're routinely saying varroa are significant issues. They're saying um, uh, nutrition or is a significant issue for their bee colonies and diseases and pests. But oddly enough, in the top five every year, they list queen quality as one of the most significant stressors that they face. So when I see a project like yours and you're rearing queens in vitro or in the lab and you're showing that it's the amount of diet and not necessarily the quality of the diet that, le- that, that pushes them towards queens, you know, what downstream could this do for beekeepers? What, what could we, where could we head with this information that might help beekeepers improve queen quality so that they can have better queen or better colony survivorship and better uh, colony productivity? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I had also noticed that about queen quality being really important. 
Um, and I think having quality queens helps the, the overall resilience of the bee population to lots of the other problems that they have. So in getting back to what the ramifications might be, I mean, we've known nutrition is important and it definitely is. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, quality was unimportant. It still is very important. I think that just this adds an, another thing for commercial beekeepers to consider. And I know that, you know, the way they rear them, a lot of times the nurse bees are taking care of most of the job. But I think if there's anything they can do to ensure that enough, um, you know, food is fed to the queens and the queen cups, I think would be really good. Um, I know that a cup size and things like that can kind of influence how much food is, is fed to queens. Uh, and I think it's something to be mindful. Uh, another thing that I thought about it is different ways to think about queenliness and queen quality. And um, I know there's lots of different metrics, but I think looking at some of these morphological ones might be helpful because it doesn't involve killing the queens in order to look at them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you guys plan to continue research on this topic? Yes. In fact, we're doing in vitro rearing this summer. Our goals are to look at these different kinds of queen-like individuals that come out of these diet treatments and look at the different genes that are being expressed in the different hormones. Um, we're really curious about whether these in vitro reared queen-like individuals, how queen-like are they and how similar is our in vitro process to uh, what might be happening in the hive based on what we know about hormones and genes during that time. Well, absolutely. This is research that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Cause like I said, we've been rearing workers for quite a bit and have even played around with rearing Queens some in previous years. So it's really interesting to hear all of this. I, so for our listeners sake, this uh, manuscript will be linked in our show notes. Again, it's diet quantity influences cast determination in honeybees is published in the proceedings of the Royal Society B. There will be a link in the notes that was done by Dr. Julia Bauscher and her colleagues at North Dakota State University. Julia, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. That was Dr. Julia Bauscher, who's an associate professor of evolutionary and developmental biology, Department of Biological Sciences, North Dakota State University. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right, we are doing our question and answer. We're going to do a really quick Q&A today, and we have two questions from Facebook. Um, one from someone named John Stramilo. I probably butchered that name, and then someone named Kevin Her. Here? Her? H-E-R-R. Okay, we just quit trying. <laughs> <laughs> just John and Kevin at this point. <laughs> All right, so John was wondering, he has a hive and he uses a screen bottom board. He coats the plastic removable boards with canola or vegetable oil to catch all the good stuff that falls at the bottom, like varroa, small hive beetle, larva. And so he's heard of people using diatomaceous earth on the board, as well as using small hive beetle traps that sits between the frames. Is there a danger or are there benefits to using diatomaceous earth versus using an oil? Well, there's a couple of things at play here, Amy. And I want to make sure that I understand this correctly. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my best maybe to answer it two ways, depending on what he, he's really asking. So if you use a screen bottom board and your screen bottom board is open to the ground, mm -hmm. there's really no need to put an insert on it and coat it 
to catch those varroa, et cetera, because those things that naturally fall will fall through the screen bottom board and to the ground. Sure. So that's, that's the standard screen bottom board. Now, some screen bottom boards, things can, they'll be, they'll have a piece of wood under them. And that's where people will kind of slide small high beetle trays or slide these plastic inserts, et cetera. In those cases, the varroa or, or what have you will fall through the screen, but, you know, still into the colony because they're just simply landing on a board. And the worry there is that they can crawl back up through the screen and get back onto the bees. In that case, you can put this plastic insert and coat it with vegetable oil to catch the varroa, to catch the small high beetle larvae, et cetera. So I would argue if you're using the first option, the open screen bottom board where things just fall to the ground, you don't have to put anything under there at all because if small, small high beetle larvae or varroa are falling through the screen to the ground, they're not going to make it back into the hive. If, however, you have one of the screen bottom boards that does have that kind of wooden piece underneath, then it is helpful to have that plastic insert that you coat with Vaseline or vegetable oil to catch things. Now, the, the fact that he mentioned diatomaceous, diatomaceous earth leads me to believe that he wants to put that under his colony, perhaps as a way to kill the beetle larvae or varroa. And I would argue mm-hmm. that the research that I've seen on diatomaceous, diatomaceous earth suggests that it doesn't really help that much. Um, there have been people who've sprinkled it around colonies and done research to show that it's not really impacting beetle larvae as they crawl into the soil. And even if you were to put a trap under that hive that then itself in uh, contained diatomaceous earth with the hope that the larvae or the varroa or what have you would fall into it. I would argue that diatomaceous earth is not necessary. Even in that case, you could just put vegetable oil in those traps as well. Now he also mentioned the traps, the small high beetle traps that go between frames in the nest. I do like those. There's many versions of those, you know, the better beetle blaster, the AJ mm-hmm. beetle eater, et cetera. There's, there's a few different types I do like those. We tend to put vegetable oil or mineral oil in ours. If we're having beetle problems in Florida, which we often do, we'll put two of those traps per box. So if a hive is composed of five boxes, we'll have 10 of those beetle traps scattered throughout. But even in those, we're not using diatomaceous earth. We're simply using vegetable oil or mineral oil. Sure. And some people use um, essential oils in those too. Does that work? They do use essential oils. I don't think it's really, they're, they're really that useful, frankly. Sure. I, I really, what you're trying to do is you're providing these traps as a place for small high beetles to go hide. And really, mm-hmm. once, once they go in there, you just need them to get coated in oil. You know, if, a lot of people will use apple cider vinegar because it is probably unattractive. It probably attracts beetles to those traps. However, beetles can go into the vinegar and come right back out. So you've got to have a killing agent in those traps (laughs) as well, which is where the oil comes into play. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So for the second question, um, we, a couple of episodes ago, talked about your top 10 tips for beekeepers. And we were talking about varroa mites, how they look like chia seeds, and you didn't know what chia seeds were, which is fine. Um, But you also started talking about conducting an honest assessment of the quality of forage sources where bees are located. So his questions are, you know, how do you recognize, how does a person recognize those you know, forage sources and are there resources for seeing what kind of sources or forage is around you and are there actual quantitative measures for this assessment? So there's no um, quantitative measure. So by definition, a quantitative measure, you can go out there and measure. There's more of a qualitative measure where Mm -hmm. where you're trying to assess uh, more visually. And so let me give you a couple pointers here. Number one, you need instantly 
If you are going to keep bees in an area, you need instantly to go to your nearest local bee club or find some local beekeepers and ask them, hey, you live in this area. Is this a good honey producing area? What plants should I look out for? Right? Because your Mm -hmm. beekeepers in your area are going to have lived through nectar producing seasons and they're going to be able to know where you are. There's lots of this thing that's good or there's none of this thing that's bad. Before I moved to where I live in Florida, there was a beekeeper I knew who lived in this area. He said, Jamie, this particular area is a tough place to keep bees because there are no nectar resources. And I kind of wrote them off because I'm a lot like other beekeepers. Well, you know, bees can fly three to five miles. They'll find it. Mm-hmm. But when I moved down here, I was like, you know, my great beekeeping skills and knowledge, my bees are going to go find this forage. Well, there's nothing but oak trees and pine trees here. My bees make no honey. And it took another beekeeper living in this area telling me that. And then it took me living through three honey seasons here before I finally believed it. So I should have listened (laughs) to the beekeeper to begin with. So my recommendation is you got to go to your local bee clubs, find your nearest beekeepers, ask them, what are the plants that bees make honey from in this area? And then you need to ask, you know, are there beekeepers near where I live? If they are, do they produce honey? Another great resource for you will be your local county extension office. Mm -hmm. You know, your local extension agent, if I were told, Back, you know, 15 years ago when I was moving to Florida, Jamie, you need to look for salt, palmetto, and gallberry. I would have gone to my local extension office and say, hey, what are these things? I live in this particular area. Is there a lot of this stuff known to be there? And some of the county agents would have been able to tell me, yeah, you know, Jamie, where you're living, there's not a lot of this. There's a lot of oak trees and pine trees, and there's no such thing as oak honey. So all of these things would have helped me. If, if I want to produce honey, where I live, I have to move my bees and I have to move them to areas now that I can recognize have lots of gallberry and lots of palmetto. So you need to do your homework just because bees can fly a long distance doesn't mean they're going to fly far enough to get you honey if you live in a nectar desert. Sure. What do you do if you don't, I mean, if you can't move your, your hives? If you can't move your hives, then you're not going to produce honey. That's just the, the bottom line. Where my bees are in my backyard, I produce no honey. So if producing honey is important to me, I've got to move bees. And if moving bees is not an option, then you just have to know that you're going to be keeping bees, but not making honey, Mm -hmm. which is what I've done the 14 years I've lived where I live. (laughs) You've made no honey. Yeah, it's funny, funny, Amy. I I really do. And, And it's funny because there's a couple of plants that come in bloom here that provide just enough nectar for the bees to not starve to death. Sure. And one blooms super early in the year. So if I get freezes that knock it out, I know I'm going to have to feed my bees Uh, until uh. that second plant blooms, which is it it blooms late in the year. And there are certain seasonal situations where it won't produce a lot of nectar. So basically, I have two plants that produce enough nectar to keep my bee colonies alive. Both of those nectar sources are pretty produce pretty unpalatable honey. And so it's it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm here giving people advice. Uh, about bees and beekeeping, but my bees have not made honey. And it's it's not because I don't know what I'm doing. It's because I'm truly in a nectar desert. If mm-hmm. I wanted to make honey, I've got to move my bees. I've got to because the, the options that I have in my area are just simply limited. Sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for answering those for us. Yeah. And Amy, having done an honest assessment years ago would have saved me all these trouble. I started <laughs> with, I needed to listen to that beekeeper. I needed to not say, oh, crap, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to show him. No, he yeah. showed me. He knew the area and said, you know, 
not a not a single bee colony is made pine honey. So I, I needed to be prepared for that. But it took three years of stubbornness to show that he was right. <laughs> that's and, you know the 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 questioner said, "What are some other ways that I can know? You can know by trying to live through a couple of seasons. If two or three years in, you're not producing lots of surplus quality honey, then it's probably not your bees. It's probably the area." Sure. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. We would like to give an extra special thank you to our audio engineer, James Weaver, and to our podcast coordinator, Jacqueline Ayenje. Without their hard work, Two Bees in a Podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. <laughs>